Chapter 6 Trouble Begins Monday, 13 July 1970 Destroyer Submarine Piers, Norfolk Navy Base, Virginia 1100 The card entered the channel leading to the DNS piers and was progressing toward their assigned anchorage area. Slow to four knots. Four knots, I. As the ship was slowing, a loud graveling sound came through the starboard forward bow. Bridge, this is after watch. We're dragging something astern. We aren't close enough to anything to ram, and the maps do not show any debris in the area, added the navigator. The anchor watch on the Pelican had tripped the release, and the anchor was deployed. He applied the brake, but it jammed. The chain continued to spill out. The yellow painted section appeared, indicating the chain was nearing the end. Then the red paint appeared, indicating the end of the chain. The pull of the ship ripped it loose from its moorings on the anchor bay, with a ear-shattering sound like steel tearing loose from the inside the forward hull. Then all was quiet. Forward watch! What was that noise? The anchor watch must have tripped the release and the anchor deployed, shouted the forward watch. All stop, shouted the con officer. All stop, shouted the engine room. Have we lost the anchor? Con officer asked the forward watch. Yes, sir, it sank. Mr. McCormick and Mr. Winthrop came onto the bridge to inquire about the noise. So what do we do about this, Commander? Mr. Goldsmith asked. Commander McCormick gave a sigh of disbelief and disgust, slowly shook his head. Mr. Goldsmith was noticeably agitated and fearful. Notify the captain, said Mr. Winthrop. Mr. Goldsmith, you have the con, so you contact Comrades Desron. Tell him we need the authority to contact the destroyer tender and the yards for repairs, said McCormick. The radio message was sent to Comrades Desron 34 and to Comrades Des Div 5 with info to Materiel, Paranaval Base Norfolk. The message noted the problem. Materiel in repair, anticipating approval, assigned the card to the USS Yellowstone, AD-18. AD-18 was located at the end of the DNS piers, next to the Orion AS-18, a submarine tender. The tender assigned them to repair Pier 18, a short distance from the Yellowstone, and informed them that they would send over a crane and look for the anchor. They would also send a team to look at the damage. They were none too happy. They were ordered to put the card as a priority, since it was to remain on the schedule for joining the division in Mayport and sail to Cuba. If that was not enough, Furman, after clearing it with Mr. Hoover, informed them that they will need a camel so the card's deck force could make some cosmetic repairs. A dent in the side and a coat of paint for the appearance of Mayport. Mr. McCormick added the camel to the list. Material and repair won't be none too happy about getting us a camel. Or maybe me and Mr. Hooper should go over there to the repair and do some one-on-one, -on -one, you know, negotiating, said Furman. Twelve hundred. Now pipe to the noon mail, came over the 1MC as the ship moved into the repair piers. Twelve thirty. The car tied up at repair pier, and as soon as its mooring and line was made fast on the pier, the boatswain of the watch passed the word to shift colors. The ship's call sign and steaming ensign was hauled down, and the jack and ensign were raised. The shift from ship power to shore power went without a glitch. The deck force began preparing for fresh paint on the starboard side and on the numbers. The 1MC shouted, Relieve the watch on deck, section Bravo. Commence daily routine. 
Waiting on the pier repair dock was Lieutenant Commander Dr. Mark Johnson, a reserve who has made his cruise for the past five years. He requested a different ship each year, and this year he was cautioned against accepting a billet on the card. It was a jink ship, he was told, with a poor reputation. That was all the incentive he needed to put in for it. He even called the commanding officer to make sure he was assigned to the card. Dr. Johnson had a lucrative family practice, but his avocation was the Navy. He felt more like a Navy doctor than a doctor in the Navy. He drilled with a Marine Reserve unit on a Marine base in Pensacola, Florida. He was 40, married with two children, a boy 11 and a girl 14. Standing with him was his corpsman, Navy Petty Officer First Class Christopher Harris. Harris and the doctor were assigned to the same duty station and had made three such trips together. They made an excellent team. Harris usually led some casualty drills on ships that had little training in such matters. Those casualty drills were not usually welcomed by the crew until those on the casualty team had to use those skills in Gitmo drill scenario. Harris was more than a corpsman. He put in four years with the 1st Marine Corps Division and saw combat in the last war. Before going to boot camp, he and his father took a 30-day vacation and walked across Europe. After his four-year hitch, he re-enlisted for another four years in the Ready Reserves and received certification as a paramedic. He has been with a major trauma helicopter search and rescue unit as well as an ambulance company. He was about 24, with a wife and one adopted three-year-old girl he rescued from a small aircraft crash in the forest that took the life of her parents. The ship was secure and normal moored operations were underway and the officers were relaxing in the wardroom when the captain entered. When the doctor comes on board, I want to talk to him about mass casualty drills. I want those drills to commence on the way to Mayport after we clear the sea channel. The doctor's on board now, sir. He was waiting for us when we pulled in. He's already stowed his gear and is now checking out our sick bay with his corpsman, said McCormick. The captain keyed to 1MC. Doctor, may I see you in the wardroom, please? Certainly, I'll be right there. The doctor approached the wardroom door, checked himself, brushed the front of his uniform to make sure he was presentable to the captain. Uncovered, toward the door handle, and pushing the door open, he stepped inside. The captain was leaning against the coffee counter, sipping from a cup. Lieutenant Commander Johnson reporting as ordered, Captain, he said, directing his presentation to the captain. Glad to have you aboard, Commander. How may I be of service to you, sir? As soon as we clear the sea channel, I want some mass casualty simulations. I understand you and your corpsman have experience in such things. Indeed we do, sir. We've been to Gitmo several times, and we're pretty good preparing the crew for what they're going to encounter. Good. So I can just leave it to you, then? Certainly. I'll inform the quartermaster when to call for damage control and casualty assistance. First, we will talk them through the scenario, then later, we'll ask for volunteers to simulate actual casualties. The captain turned to Mr. McCormick. We will call general quarters and try to make it as real as we can. That is what I would suggest, sir. I want forward gun, midships, and after gun mounts. Depth charge racks, another by the stack, one by the engine room and the pilot house. Captain, may I suggest we do one on the bridge? Agreed. That would include lookouts. We can do it with limited interruption. That sounds excellent, Doctor. Thank you. Now, gentlemen and ladies, let's sit for an evening meal. The captain moved to the head of the table. The officers moved to their assigned places. The captain sat down, followed by the XO, followed by the other officers. 
Machinist Mate First Class Mike Brewer reported aboard and went right to work making repairs on the items that Chief Gruber had repaired for him. Finding another anchor was not as easy as finding a camel that was not in use. Finally, one was extracted from a destroyer that had come in for strip-down and decommissioning. The Yellowstone scheduled a crane, brought it to the pier for use in hoisting the large anchor. Photographer's mate Charles Sandlin reported aboard. Petty officer of the watch consulted his watch station and quarter bills and directed Sandlin to stow his gear in the after-berthing area near the port bulkhead, section Alpha 16. Upon completing that, testing the mattress on his assigned rack, he went immediately to set up the photo shop in a small space just off the ship's door. Monday, 13 July 1970. Somewhere on I-64 between Charlottesville and Richmond. 1600. Orville Smidlap was pleased with himself as he sat in the front seat of the Greyhound bus, rolling down I-64 toward the DNS beers in Norfolk, and the beginning of Phase 4 of his plan to become a quartermaster on a U.S. Navy ship. Phase 1 began when he met with the Navy recruiter that visited his high school in his hometown of Frace, Virginia. He joined the Navy Reserves and drilled with the Reserve Unit until he completed his senior year. Phase 2 was off to boot camp in Great Lakes, Illinois. After a nine-week basic training program, Phase 3 of his plan took shape when he applied for and was accepted into Quartermaster A School. Now, after six months' program, he was certified quartermaster striker. He was authorized to wear the ship's wheel insignia on his uniform just above the two stripes on his left sleeve. He was a quartermaster like his recruiter. Now, he was on his way to Phase 4, active duty on a U.S. Navy ship, heading for war games in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Not just any ship, a tin can, just like his recruiter. After this cruise, he'll have two more years of obligated duty. But by then, he planned to be a third-class, and maybe even a second-class quartermaster. That will trigger Phase 5 of his plan, re-enlisting in the regular Navy and staying until retirement. All his life, he was Orville Schmidlap. When he reports aboard the USS Card, he will be Smitty, with two Ds. He was 18 and headed toward being a man. But not just a man, a Navy man. 1600. The 1MC on the USS card came alive with the announcement to knock off ship's work and shift into the clean uniform of the day. Robert Benson reporting aboard. He was greeted by Chief Osborne, who escorted him to his rack and waited until he stowed his gear and took him to meet his new boss. The chief wanted to introduce Benson personally, hoping to belay any fireworks the top gunner may have set off. In the meantime, Captain Mills visited Captain Sorensen on the flagship Lansing. He was escorted to Comrades Desron's stateroom. Captain Sorensen greeting him with enthusiasm. Hello, Bob, I see you made it. <laughs> Not without some trouble, I'm sad to relate. Yes, I suspected you would want to tell me about losing your anchor. Some reserve seamen let the pelican go too soon, I take it. Your intel is right, Captain. Well, I'm well aware of the consequences of losing an anchor, and I'm yours to command, sir. Ordinarily, there would be grave consequences, Captain Mills, but Pulaski and I, well, we don't see the card situation as ordinary, or your assignment as ordinary. Res Dez did fixed it with the Navy base. You have lived up to your expectations and your reputation so far, and we expect, aside from this little incident, you will succeed in bringing it through to get more exercises in fine fashion. Now sit. Let's eat. 1620. Chief Osborne found Phelps in the forward gun mount. The duty quartermaster 
began ringing eight bells, indicating the end of the afternoon and the beginning of the dog watch. Chief Osborne approached the forward gun mount to find GM-1 Phelps. Phelps! Yes, Chief. Here is your new loader, Robert Benson. GM-1 Brenda Phelps was in a squat position, tinkering with what looked like, to Benson, some kind of firing mechanism. Benson took a mental note of his new boss. Phelps was an independent sort of woman in her mid-twenties, about five foot nine, with an athletic build. Her short, cropped black hair was well-groomed under her work hat. She was not a beautiful woman, and not what you might call pretty, but she was attractive and easy to look at. She had a confident look about her. There was no mistaking that she knew what she was there for, and she knew she was good at the job. Phelps looked up at Benson. She noticed his boyish face and crooked grin. She quickly calculated him to be in his mid-twenties, maybe twenty-one or twenty-two, about five foot ten, maybe eleven or so. Good build, but that was expected of a boy his age. The chief expected some unladylike old seaman dog language, but she just looked at Benson without expression. I'm looking forward to working with you, Phelps. You may change your mind about that in a few hours, Benson. I'm determined to make a good showing in Gitmo, and that means you have a lot of learning and training to do between now and then. So, let's get at it. She stood up and turned toward the deck locker. It was welded to the forward mount on the deck. She opened the metal box, took out a gunner's mate manual. She tossed it to Benson, who, much to her pleasant surprise, caught it. Well, I'll leave you two to your work, the chief said, and he moved out quickly. Okay, Benson, we haven't much time, so let's get at it. First, I'll show you how the fire control system works. Then, on to where the gun batteries are placed, and then we will focus on the forward gun and its ammunition. It's not automatic, so there's a lot more for you to know before we reach Getmo. She took him below decks, to the area where the fire control computer is mounted. There are two main parts of this fire control system, the director and the computer. Both handle the fire control problem. The fire control problem is the beginning with the designation of the target and the type of fire and the ending with the destruction of the target. Without saying a word, she moved to the ladder that took them topside. Benson dutifully followed her. The director is a box-like steel compartment mounted high on the ship's superstructure. It's large enough to hold a small number of people and a large amount of control gear. She pointed to the place where the director was located. On top of that director is a radar antenna. And projecting out on either side are the ends of the optical rangefinder. So the director sees both electronically and optically. When the target is picked up by the director, its range, bearing, and elevation, and sent below decks to the computer. She looked into Benson's eyes to see if any of what she was saying was registering, but Benson's expressionless face gave her no idea if, in fact, he was getting in this at all. She continued, The computer, you will remember, is down below decks. It receives information from the director and combines that with the ship's course, speed, the ship's roll and pitch and drift of the projectile and, and other factors feed into it from people feeding information into it. The computer sends these answers to two places, back to the director for a check, and then on to the gun. That is where we come in. She paused and looked again into his eyes to see how much of this he was digesting. You got that? Oh, yeah, so far, I think. Well, you better get it before we get to Gitmo. For the rest of the day, Phelps oriented Benson to the forward gun business. 1715. Now evening meal is being served on the mess decks. 
came the blasting word from the YMC. Okay, Benson, it's chow time. Are you up for some after-duty extra instruction? Phelps asked. You bet. I have a lot to learn, and I'm going to make contributions to this gun during the war. Why not have supper together, and then we can work through supper? Negative. Take this manual and read as much as you can between now and 0800 tomorrow morning. They will pipe to the flick at 1800. The crew will assimilate at the BRT. So let's knock off, and we'll start again tomorrow. Uh, Phelps. Yeah? Where is the BRT? You've never been aboard a ship, have you? No, ma'am, I guess I have a lot to learn about shipboard jargon. Well, just go up to the O2 and ask someone. What is the, uh, O2? She pointed toward the O2 weather deck. That's the O2. Got it? So I'll find the BRT on the O2? Right. He smiled. 1750. Now relieve the watch, came the word from the duty boatswain's mate. 1800. The ship's intercom blasted. Now Liberty Call. Liberty for all hands. Section Bravo, Charlie, and Delta. Liberty to end at 0700 tomorrow morning. Now Liberty. 1815. Now sweepers, sweepers, man your brooms. Make a clean sweep down fore and aft. Sweep down all lower deck ladders and passageways. Empty all trash cans. Lay below to the MAA, office for muster. All restricted persons. 1920. Now rig for movies. 2000. The 8 o'clock reports were piped to 2000, followed by the 1MC announcement. Now movie call, movie call. When the movie call was piped, some of the crew assembled on the O2 level, around and in front of the stack, looking aft, while others sat on the fantail between the depth charge racks, looking forward to the movie screen that was erected at the end of the O2. As darkness fell, the movie was about to start. Benson went up to the O2 and asked a sailor where he could find the BRT. The BRT? asked the old salt boatswain mate. Who told you to ask for the BRT? Phelps, Gunner One. Figures. Look, the BRT is that thing. He pointed to a wide-mouthed, short-stack-looking item that rose above the deck, about four feet high. This is the fresh air intake for the lower decks, he said. Sometimes sailors refer to this short stack as the BRT. What does it stand for? <laughs> it stands for Big Round Thing. Okay. <laughs> Sit here, mate. The flick is uh, called the Investigators. I've seen it before. It stinks, but it sure beats being below decks drinking coffee. The screen came alive with a Warner Brothers cartoon target, but the music was drowned out by the roar of two Navy fighter planes flying low in over the ocean on their trip from the carrier somewhere off the coast, leading to NAS Oceana. Monday, 13 July, 1970, Greyhound Bus, Destroyer Submarine Piers, U.S. Naval Base, Norfolk, Virginia, 2200. The hound carrying Smitty, with two Ds, pulled into the DNS piers. He was surprised that the bus could drive right through the gates into the base. The bus came to a stop in front of a line of ships. The driver called out the names of the ships, and sailors stood up and moved down the aisle and out the door. Smitty did not hear the card's name called, but he got up anyway. The driver opened the luggage bin and pulled out the sea bags as the sailors called out their names. When everyone had their sea bag, the driver looked up to Smitty. Name? I didn't hear you call the USS card. Oh, that's in another nest down the pierways. Hop aboard and I'll get you there before 2359, so don't worry. Apparently the driver was an ex-Navy man, thought Smitty. 
After two more stops, the driver found the young QM in the rearview mirror. Hey, quartermaster, this is your stop. He slowed the big bus to a stop and opened the door. There was a few more sailors getting off here. Most had ship patches on their uniforms, but none were the cars. The driver opened the luggage bin and pulled out the sea bags as the sailors called out their names. The driver hesitated before removing Cindy's sea bag. Wait a minute, he said. The card. Let me check my master sheet. He climbed back into the driver's compartment as Smitty stood in the doorway. Oh, yeah. We got word the card was sent to the repair pier. It's about a mile down the road. Hop in. A few minutes later, they pulled into the repair pier. And there was a lone ship standing stately in the water. The lights on the pier shone against the ship's hull. And from where they were sitting, they could see the stern of the ship. There was no mistaking the raised white letters against navy gray paint hull. C-A-R-D. The driver opened the baggage compartment and removed Smitty's sea bag. Enjoy your cruise, sailor, he said. Smitty hoisted the sea bag onto his shoulders and headed toward his tin can. Then he reached the gangway. He stopped and admired the USS card. He wanted to take it all in. Finally, he climbed the gangway and stepped onto the ship. He lowered his sea bag, opened it, and removed the packet with his orders in it. Is this your first time boarding a Navy ship, lad? asked the O.O.D. Yes, sir. Turn aft, salute the ensign, then salute the O.O.D. That would be me. Request permission to come aboard. Then you present your orders. Smitty followed the O.O.D.'s instructions. Granted, Smitty looked at his watch. 22.32. I'll remember that time for the rest of my life. It's the first time, I said, permission to come aboard to my first ship. The duty petty officer called the duty quartermaster to come to take Smitty to the after-birthing compartment at the very rear of the ship. Harrelson, QM3, of the car's regular Navy ship's company, met him on the quarterdeck and they walked aft down the non-skid walkway on the outer portion of the main deck toward the fantail. On the fantail, a hatch door was opened between the depth charge racks that sat next to the edge of the starboard and port sides. It's lights out, Smitty, said Harrelson, in a voice just above the whisper. It's dark, so watch your step. There was some emergency lighting that allowed some visibility in the otherwise dark sleeping area. Smitty smiled as he thought to himself, The most powerful navy in the history of mankind sleeps with a nightlight. <laughs> this is your rack. He said in a low voice, and he pointed to the top rack in a stack of three in a row of twelve. It was a single-sized bed that connected to the bulkhead with hinges that allowed the bed to be folded down and out of the way. Along the bulkhead, near a row of racks, was a row of lockers that opened from the top. This is your locker. He raised the lid and propped it open. Stow your gear in here. He patted the new guy on the back. Report to the bridge at 0700 in the morning. Right after chow, said Harrison. With that, he climbed back up the ladder, out of the hatch, leaving Smitty alone. Smitty decided to get out a work uniform for tomorrow and leave everything else to put away in the morning. He removed his dress whites, folded them neatly, and placed them in the locker on top of his little sea bag. Standing there, in his skivvies, he worked out in his mind how he was going to get into the rack without bothering his new shipmates on the bottom and middle rack. He noticed pipes hanging over the rack, so he decided to use them to pull up. He jumped, caught the nearest pipe, and pulling himself up, he swung his legs and feet into the rack, and then positioned his shoulders so his head could rest neatly against a small pillow. 
There, that worked out just right, he thought. He lay there and let his mind take in the ambiance and the thrill of his first night on board a U.S. Navy ship. He relished the gentle rocking motion of the ship, the sound of the water against the hull, the smell of diesel fuel and steel and fresh paint. He listened to the breathing of his shipmates as they slept peacefully, completely at home, comfortable and waiting for the dawn, when again they would participate in the shipboard routine. He intended to spend more time enjoying this new experience, but sleep overtook him. Most of the crew was back on board before midnight. Many of the first-timers to Norfolk took the opportunity to shop at some of the local seafarer stores to purchase some tailor-made uniforms or purchase some liberty cuffs to sew on the underside of their dress blue uniform. Although it was not regulation to turn the cuff sleeves up to display the various patterns available, few officers or senior enlisted objected. Some were very nice, dolphins, sharks, destroyer silhouettes, rebel flag designs. Monday, 13 July, 1970, Repair Pier, U.S. Naval Base, Norfolk, Virginia, 2300. The rain began at 2300 and continued to grow stronger, and the wind increased to about 20 knots. The water by the pier was getting restless. The storm picked up steam, and the ship was rocking hard. The zero-two level spanned the opening between the port-side weather deck of the ship and the starboard-side weather deck, providing a large overhead covering that served as a shield for the deck officer and the petty officer of the watch. The rain beat hard against the ship, pushing it out from the pier and then thrusting it back into the pier. When Mr. McCormick took the deck officer duties at 2359, he ordered the engine room to start the port engine and run it in reverse to hold the ship as close to the pier and the camel as possible. The deck force had let out the lines three times during the night. The storm was not predicted to blow all night. Mr. Hooper took the deck officer watch at 0400. The ship was still beating hard against the camel in spite of the port engine. But he maintained the port engine order under the shelter of the port to starboard passageway. The storm blew out at 0500. Mr. Hooper discontinued the use of the port engine that was running to maintain stability. Tuesday, 14 July, 1970. Repair Pier, U.S. Navy Base, Norfolk, Virginia. 0614. Slowly the eastern sky began to lighten. A brilliant red, yellow, and pale blue appeared over the arc of the sea. Then a burst of sunshine sent sprays of color in every direction, pushing the night sky into the west. The deck officer stepped out and peered over the starboard side at the camel. It was badly damaged and caught between the ship and the concrete pier. The storm's wind had raged and caused massive damage. The deck officer was impressed. That camel was six foot by six foot, made of six by six railroad tie-like wood beams, and here it was badly damaged. 0700. Mr. Hooper sent the bridge messenger to the captain's stateroom, informing him of the damaged camel. The captain came out. The deck officer stood by his side, as his relief, Mr. Goldsmith, the eight o'clock deck watch, came up. They stood there, shaking their heads. If our relationship with the Navy base was not already in the can, this surely will do it, opined Mr. Goldsmith. I'm afraid you're right, Mr. Goldsmith, sighed the captain. We came in with a bad reputation before the anchor incident. Notify the Navy base and tell them about their camel. Tell them we need another one, he said with a noticeable sigh. Mr. Hooper chimed in. The anchor should arrive around ten hundred. 
The crane is already in place. I think we can consider the painting completed on the hull. There are some noticeable dents in the side of the ship, but they pose no threat to the integrity of the hull. So unless you think we need one, perhaps we can do without it. Well, Mr. Hooper, you're the one to know. If you say we don't need it, let's not give the Navy base something else to shake their heads at. Just write it up on the damage report and submit it along with the other paperwork. Aye, sir. Executive Assessment Crisis Management Plans Activated Crisis Management with Disruptive Surprises The USS Card had a bad reputation coming into Norfolk. The problem with the anchor and the camel only added to the distrust of those in command positions. Perhaps some type of PR activity would have reduced further erosion of the organization's reputation, or maybe the reputation was just too far gone. Boats had made first-class firmin, knew some people on the Yellowstone, and was willing to talk to them in order to relieve some of the pressures. After all, this weekend warriorship was a ne'er-do-well reserves. It was placed in front of the regular Navy ships in order to get it ready for Gitmo, even though it would probably flunk out on its first day. There are times when an hourly employee makes a better PR person because they can communicate with those who are actually doing the job on the floor. A manufacturing firm was experiencing problems getting the color right on the product. As much as they tried, technicians and managers were not able to get the supplier to understand the problem they were experiencing. The company flew a team of hourly employees who worked with the product to meet with hourly personnel who were actually making the color to resolve the issue. They were successful. Again, if hourly employees are well trained and authorized to do what is needed, productivity is assured. Did you notice there were those on board who knew what to do in the circumstances of the anchor? Responsible executives know their departments well enough to plan for contingencies and ready to deal with them. Every manager has a responsibility for contingency plans for major accidents or destructive events that damage important equipment or facilities. Mr. Winthrop exercised a critical standard operating procedure regarding holding the ship in place while tied up at the pier in a storm. There is evidence that others were aware of the SOP and what to do when energized. There are those tricks of the trade for dealing with situations that do not occur very often but has a critical impact on equipment and personnel. The boss and the boss's subordinates need to know what they are. The captain ordered the doctor to run casualty drills and even gave him carte blanche as to which and where and how eventful those drills were to be. When assigning a person or a team with the responsibility for running some major drill, is it wise to let them disrupt operations? In many cases, yes, if there is a possibility that such an event could occur. Everyone in management and staff, professionals and hourly persons, are required to participate in those drills, even though those drills disrupt the standard flow of operations. Did you notice Gunner's Mate First Class Phelps had a planned, structured indoctrination, orientation, and training of this rookie Benson, who had no idea what fire control or gunnery was all about. It was imperative that Benson's training would promise a hit-the-pavement-running competence. Machinist mate first class Brewer blended with Chief Gruber in making repairs and retrofitting the card. We have spent a considerable amount of time on the need for planning and setting up procedures for dealing with day-to-day -day operations as well as out-of-the-ordinary situations. 
blending new managers and employees, especially temporary personnel, into the mainstream of an ongoing operation, it's critical for operational continuity as well as for employee environment and comfort to be maintained. A well-planned and presented orientation program, followed by a step-by-step training and inclusion program, is the key. Notice that regardless of what was going on with the newly arriving personnel and the necessary repairs, the ship's business and routine was uninterrupted. As if they did not have enough problems with materiel and repair in the Navy base, they failed to remove the camel before the storm destroyed it. On recommendations from his officers, Captain Mills decided to put it into the report, where it may not be noticed until long after they were gone. Is it ever prudent to ignore or hide a glitch in the operations? Situations like coming into port and losing an anchor would normally cost a captain his command, even though it was not his fault. You probably heard of head football coaches and head baseball coaches losing their job when the team can't seem to win. More often than not, executives in charge are the first to be fired when bad things happen because their job is to see that things like that do not happen. Captain Sorensen and Admiral Pulaski didn't see the card situation as ordinary. Res Dasdiv fixed the materiel and repair and the Navy base. From this, you can see the importance of having friends in high places. Professional competence, bearing, and an attitude of expectancy, along with maintaining pertinent political connections, will be a big help in getting your job done. Just be careful that your behavior does not appear to be suck-up. Command axioms. There are times when an hourly employee makes a better PR person because they can communicate with those who are actually doing the job on the floor. Responsible executives know their departments well enough to plan for contingencies and be ready to deal with them. Every manager is responsible for contingency plans for major accidents or other destructive events that damage important equipment and facilities. If there is a possibility that an event could occur, everyone in management and staff, professionals and hourly personnel are required to participate in those drills even though those drills interrupt the standard flow of operations.